Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. On the, on the weekend away, I, I do want to uh, thank Alicia for really pulling it all together. Can we just <laughs> Our thanks is not dependent on the performance of the weekend. It's just, we're just grateful uh, that, that you've done that. And, and my big encouragement is to, if you can, to try and get down there for 8 o'clock on the Friday um, because we have got a first session which will begin just about 8 uh, with Toppy. Um, I think there's food on the Friday from about half 6 to about 8. There's a sort of a buffet kind of thing, so there will be food you can have when you get down there. And it is about an hour and 45-minute, two-hour drive down, down to Ashburnham. Or there is a station battle, which is about two miles away, and I'm sure you can arrange to get picked up from there if you want to. So um, we're continuing our series on, on Moses, and now we've moved to the people of God. So I'm just going to read a few scriptures, uh, and then we'll look at this uh, particular passage. So it's uh, Exodus chapter 17. And it's verse 8, and there's a couple of other bits I'm going to read. So the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And now a short passage from Deuteronomy. Remember, this is Moses reminding the people at the the end, really, of his life, just before they go into the promised land, he's reminding them of what's happened. He says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. And then just another short passage that comes in 2 Chronicles um, about King Jehoshaphat. Uh, He says, listen, King Jehoshaphat, this is the prophet speaking to him, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, they are about to be attacked. 
This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, today. Thank you for the reminder that you're sovereign over all things. Thank you for uh, just the constantness of your presence with us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here. And I pray that you would uh, speak into every heart today what is required, whether it's encouragement, correction, or challenge. I pray that you would bring it to light and that you would open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, David mentioned in his prayer that we've been in uh, Exodus for weeks. And we have, I'm afraid. Um, And... uh, I can't say how much longer we'll be in it, but we're in it now. (laughs) It might be for weeks more. But we've done, you know, if you like, we're into a second part of this story. The first part, we looked at Moses as an individual and how God takes shapes and uses a life. And then in recent weeks, (coughs) excuse me, we've been looking at um, Moses and the people of God. Not not so much as an individual, but as a people um, coming. Uh, before God together and how God takes a people, shapes them and uses them. And and we looked at when they came over the Red Sea, they crossed the Red Sea, that the first thing they did was worship. And why that was important was it meant that the people were not going to worship Moses because of what had happened, but they were going to worship God. And Moses intentionally pointed them in that direction. It was their first response. And then last week we saw how God provided supernaturally for the people in the desert. Um, And they were sort of complaining about about stuff, but he provided for them. Um, But at one level, you could have argued that his provision was not as bountiful as what they had in Egypt. In Egypt, they had onions and garlic and melons, we're told, plus other stuff. And in in the desert, they had manna and quail for years and years and and water. Um, So God's provision was not, in that sense, as bountiful but it was supernatural. He provided for these, um, some would say, two million people during their time in the desert. Nobody died of starvation in the desert. Although there were were so many of them, no one died of starvation, we're uh, we're told. But now, as they move towards, actually they're at this point heading towards Sinai, the mountain of God. You'll remember when Uh, God spoke to Moses originally, one of the things he said is, you will know that it's me that has done this because you will bring the people out and worship on this mountain. We haven't reached the mountain yet, but that's where they're going. And as they are walking, we discover from uh, this passage in Deuteronomy, they are weary and tired and some of them are lagging behind. And at that point, they're attacked. So not only do they have an issue around provision, how are we going to get food and water to have every day, they've also got enemies. So they're sitting there with enemies as well, and it would be easy for them to think, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Uh, we, we can't even get the water and the bread, and now there are people attacking us. They've got enemies uh, coming to them. It's a rude awakening. These are real enemies. And these enemies, they're not there to make packs or to have treaties or to talk. 
These enemies are wicked people who attack them at their most vulnerable point. They're weary, they're tired, and they attack the ones at the back. So it's vulnerability. The Amalekites took no prisoners. It said they had no fear of God. Ironically, the Amalekites are actually sort of related. They are, they are the children of Esau, or some of the children of Esau. Esau was Jacob's brother. Jacob had the 12, uh, uh, the 12 sons who made up the tribes, of which Israel is, um, is, is the fruit of it. And they launched this surprise attack. Now, just uh, this is a, a slight aside, but I think it's important because we're talking about the people. Um, the attack is against the vulnerable and the weak, but its impact is on everyone. Because when you're part of a people, when you're part of a family, um, what happens within the family affects you. It's not just about you. And we've said right from the very beginning, God does not just call you to do your thing. He calls you to be part of a family and to be part of what he is doing. It's not what you're doing that really counts. It's what he's doing. If we were in my home and uh, I'm you know, married, I've got three girls. When we used to sort of go out and we would take the girls out, if one of them were tired or, or, or feeling a bit weary or moany, as happens when you have young children uh, and older children, um, if that's happening, we're not going to leave them. I'm not going to go, oh, my goodness, I can't be bothered to what I'm going to go on. I'd never do that. I, I might be tempted, but I would never, I'd never do that. And, and you, I'm sure you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't leave members of your family just lying there to, to, to be vulnerable. You wouldn't do that. But if you feel that, you know, God's about you and it's you and God and you're not part of a people, you might well do that. Oh, well, that's not really my problem. That's why the church is such an important idea because, and, and that you're drawn into the church, not because you sign on the dotted line. Uh, no one's done that here. There's no dotted lines uh, to sign on. No one, um, you know, I don't pay you to come or, you, you know, you don't pay me to come to church or anything like that. Uh, but, but you're joined because of uh, the faith that you have in God and the fact that God calls a people. He doesn't just call lots of individuals. Or when he does call an individual, it is to be part of a people. That's how he does it. And that ha- that's how he's always done it. So, so when Moses hears about the attack at the back, he doesn't think, oh my goodness, you know, they should just keep up. He doesn't think that. He says, we need to do something about this. So he sends uh, Joshua. This is the first time we hear uh, of Joshua, who will eventually uh, succeed Moses. And he gets news of the attack. And, and obviously, they're facing the reality of war and battles. Though God has promised them things, there is a reality that they're going to have to battle through to get them. That it's not just they sit down and God does it all. They have to battle through to get where God uh, has set. We're not told where the strategy comes from. But clearly, they have a strategy. And Moses says to Joshua, you choose some men. Choose some people from among us to go and fight the Amalekites. And tomorrow, I'm going to go to the hill. Now, I, I don't know what you think when you hear that. I wonder what you'd think if I said, you choose some people. I'm just going to go over here. Yeah? I'm not going to be directly involved. Uh, it sounds like Moses is, you know, it just seems an odd thing to do. He says, I'm going to go to the hill with the staff of God in my hands. 
And so off he goes the next day. Joshua chooses some men. And again, I, I, I did entitle this talk, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, because we realize very quickly that this battle is not about Joshua and his ability to overcome the enemy. This is not a physical battle where Moses isn't on the hill looking down going, come on, Josh, come on, get that behind you. He's not doing that. He's not there cheering him on from the sidelines. Moses is involved in the battle more than Joshua is involved in the battle. Moses is the one who holds up the rod. Somehow he knows, I need to hold the rod. And as long as I hold the rod, we're going to win the battle. That's a faith step. That's nothing to do with what's going on on the ground. That's to do with, this is how God will bring victory for us. I need to hold the rod. So God uses Moses because he gets him to hold the rod, but but he's holding a rod completely away from where the battle is. There's no magic in it. It's not Gandalf. where He's not not (laughs) flinging it out and, and, and getting rid of enemies with the rod. He's just holding the rod. And it says, as long as he held up the rod, they were winning. And when his arms grew tired and, 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 and dropped and the rod dropped, they began to lose. That doesn't make any sense. Practically, physically, it doesn't make any sense to us. You hold it up and did Moses go like this for a joke to watch them win and watch them lose? I doubt whether he did that. I might have done that. <laughs> no. Can you imagine doing that? Moses holds up the rod. And when they realize he's getting tired and they get the, uh, the other guys in to help him. It's interesting because just a really, really simple lesson we learn from that. The battle is not about what you see. It has very little to do with the practicalities, the physicality of the war on the ground. The victory in the battle is one in another place. It's not one there. It's one somewhere else. And then we find, uh, after they've had that victory, it's really important. And you see this time and time again in the scripture. And, and it's what we do. And it was really helpful that, that, that Lally just reminded us why we do communion again. Uh, because what happens after the battle is they have to remember what God has done. God is big into remembering. He's massive into remembering what he has done. He he does it when he brings them out of Egypt and and they have to have the Passover and they wipe the blood on the doorpost. What does he say to them? You will remember this. And the Passover is something that the Jewish people celebrated from that day to this day. They remember what God has done for them. Remembering is huge. God says, write it down to Joshua here. I'm not sure why he needs Joshua particularly to hear it. I suppose it must have something to do with Joshua. You're going to take the people into the promised land and you need to know the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not your battle. And he builds an altar and he calls it, the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my refuge. The Lord comes to my aid. So we have this picture of a war that's happening on the ground, but the real war that's happening somewhere else. So just briefly, what can we learn from such a story? 
How does it help us? You see, in addition to their own challenges, and we have these of daily sustenance, Israel had real enemies. Yeah? And if you think about your life, you have daily challenges. You know, will God provide this? Will God provide me food today, a job, a partner? What about these troubles I'm facing? Uh, Just daily, daily troubles, and they're your troubles. But unfortunately, in addition to your troubles, you have a real enemy. There is a real enemy out for your destruction and our destruction and the destruction of the church. Secondly, we can learn that God isn't just into using Moses. Isn't that helpful? That it's not just Moses, because sometimes it's hard to relate to Moses because some of the things that he has achieved. But, but not only is Moses talked about here, we talk about Aaron, we're introduced to her and Joshua, and they all play a part. The ultimate vic, uh, victor is God, but they all play a part in this process. Moses, Moses holds up his hands, Aaron and her support him, Joshua and the army in hand-to-hand combat on the ground. You see, God does use us. But you must understand the context in which God uses you. He uses you as part of his purposes, and ultimately it's always, always about him. He wins the battles, you don't. He might use you, but you are a vessel. And you become a vessel by opening and emptying yourself of your own dreams and your own stuff in order that you can be used by God for his purposes. And then thirdly, the reality that the battles faced were not purely what could be seen. You see, the true enemy of God is not tribes and nations and evil people. The true enemy was unmasked. It wasn't the Egyptians or the Amalekites. The true enemy of God is Satan and and his principalities and powers and the fact that he's at war against God and his ways. And, And although it's not even mentioned here, that's what's going on. That's what's behind the Amalekite attack. That's why Moses can contribute to the battle, because the battle is a spiritual one. It's not just a physical one. It's not just a practical one. And we learn that God is our banner. And if you're a Christian, if you've ever read any of the Psalms, you'll realize, God is my refuge and my strength. He's a strong tower in times of trouble. God is like that to us. And so if you are in difficulty, you can come to God as your strong tower. You can hide under the cleft of the rock. You can be with him. And the altar that we see built here is not one of sacrifice, but it's one of remembrance. We're remembering what God has done. So I just want to apply some of what we've read and looked at to us today. Just like the Israelites, we, the church, and as individuals, face more than one enemy. One of my biggest enemies is myself. Yeah? Some of the biggest battles I face are personal. Yeah? They're, they're internal. The battle for belief against unbelief, for faith against faithlessness, for, for, for purity against compromise. All those battles I face, the enemy doesn't, he doesn't need to do anything. Yeah, he can just watch me and he's battling with him. I'm fighting myself. That's often what we do. 
So, we're, so there is this internal battle that we have. But the second enemy is outside ourselves. And it says in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. So not only are you fighting yourself, you do have an enemy who is coming at you, who's fighting against you. I mean, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what the Bible says. You could add these words. It's not there in the scripture, but you could add them. But he will try to fight against it. He will try to battle against it. Second application for us, God uses people in the same way as he used Moses, as vessels for his purposes and as a body, as a people, that that Moses' reaction was not about his own personal safety. He wasn't necessarily in trouble at that moment. It was the vulnerable, it was the weak that were in trouble. But actually because they're part of a people, they're part of a family, they're part of one tribe, um, he gets involved. You see, God doesn't call many people, if any people, to lone warrior work, particularly in these days. God doesn't call individuals, you go off and do your thing. God's answer to the problems of the world is to be found in a people called the church. That's his answer. His answer is not in people with good ideas and dreams and things they want to do. It's in a people called the church. That people really need fellowship. People really need to know that they belong. That's where God's answer is. Though there may be troubles all going on around us, the biggest thing we can do is not to run around and go, I'm going to get sort this out. I'm going to try and get involved in that. I'm going to get involved in this. I'm not saying we don't get involved in politics. The biggest thing we can do is to build a church that reflects him. That's the thing to do. That's the thing that will really make a difference. It's the only thing that has stood the test of time. You look back thousands of the thousands of years since the church, it's the only thing that brings the transforming work of the gospel into life. People do lots and lots of very good activities and, um, and sort of programs, and, and they start lots of great works, but many of those works do not last. And many of those works, even when they do last, the thing that they lose is the gospel. The transforming work. I motivated the gospel, but the gospel is not just a motivation for me. It's the very thing that changes people. It's not just my motivation. It's the thing that if I do not present the gospel in the end to people, they do not come to faith in Christ. That's the thing that we need to have at the center of what we do. And then the third application for us is our battles are not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. Your real enemy, despite what you might think, is not your annoying boss. Yeah, It's not the person that just annoys you and you say, oh my goodness, I've got to sit opposite them again. It's not, that's not your real enemy. Your real enemy is not the fact that your laptop doesn't work and all the practical things are going. That's not your real enemy. Our real enemy is not the people around us that we see, difficult as they might be. Our real enemy is spiritual, which is why the victory was won through Moses holding up his hands. 
And that's why prayer becomes really important for the Christian. It's really important to pray. Because, because if Moses had not held up his hands, and, and you could argue in so many ways that that holding up of his hands was signifying praying to God, coming to God. If he hadn't held up his hands, they would not have won the victory. If you never pray, you'll never win. You'll never win. And you'll think that all sorts of things you're battling with, and, and in the end, if you, if you never come to God, if you never bring your, your, your things to God, if you never call on God, you will never win. It's interesting that we read about the altar. and We read about Moses made an altar. Um, but you'll find that altars are not mentioned much in the New Testament. There's not much talk of altars. Because what matters now is that there was a cross and that there was a tomb and that the tomb was empty. And, and when that came to pass, the need for altars in that way disappeared. There was no need for sacrifices. There was no need for those kinds of remembrances. The coming of Jesus, the death on the cross, the rising again are the final marks of God's present presence and work in the world. It's the final mark of it. If you like, it's the moment that depicted God had won the victory. That was the moment. Now, subsequent to that, we still live in a world where there is a battle. We still live in a world where all has not been conquered. But the victory has been won. Some would liken it to, if you'll know that... um, uh, Friday, there was the celebration for uh, the VE Day. It was the end. Uh, people were celebrating the end, the official end of the Second World War, the, the day where, if you like, the Germans and their allies signed a, an unconditional surrender uh, to Britain and the allies and, and those kinds of things. Um, but you could, you could argue that the war was won about a year before that on D-Day. You could argue that the moment that they had successfully uh, crossed um, uh, over the channel and that they'd, they'd begun to make a bridgehead into France that at that point the war, the, war was, the war was going against Germany at that point there were other things as well but that was a key moment but there were battles that had to be fought the reality was people still died until the moment where it was, victory was complete and so we live you could argue, in a spiritual sense, in between those two things. We live in between the moment where Jesus has won the victory and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, victorious in heaven, but we're still battling out on earth. And there is a VE day coming because he's going to come back. And that's our VE day. When, when Jesus returns, hopefully we'll be there celebrating his return. But in the meantime, we still have a very powerful enemy who prowls around. We're in the midst of a battle. We don't need altars, but we do need to remember the cross. We do need to remember the tomb. We do need to uh, experience the Holy Spirit. We do need those things. Because the battle for us today, it's, it's often subtle. It's not direct. It's very rare that the enemy comes to your house, knocks on the door and says, I'm attacking you. 
very rare that that happens. It's much more subtle than that. It, it, it distracts you. The battle is all around us. Yeah, it's not like I can go to a place, if, if I come to church, I'm not in the battle. No, you're still in the battle. Many of us are still in the battle. Even this morning, we're, we're distracted by our own thoughts. We no, I don't want to receive the truth today, whether it's in worship or through a prayer or through the preaching. I don't want to receive it. The battle is around us all the time. The battle is constant. The battle is constant means that we must remember as Christians we do not live in peacetime, we live in wartime. And you function differently in a time of war than in a time of peace. To be careful how much time you give to your pleasure and leisure. Not saying we shouldn't have pleasure and leisure, but be careful how much time you give to the things that you just think, I'm just enjoying the wonderful life that God has given. Be careful of that. If, if you're a Christian and you're seeking to live God's way, there should be a battle in your heart every day. Because the world is not leaning towards God, the world is running away from God. We must understand that. We don't live in a culture that is trying to support God or honour God. We live in a culture that is trying to undermine the God that we serve. So if you are not finding attention, you have to work out, am I living for God or am I not living for God? There should be a battle in your heart every day because the devil will tempt you every day. Don't just get used to it. Don't just think, oh, well, it's just the way it is. This is now how we are. No, this is not just how we are. Every day there should be a prayer, Father, help me. Holy Spirit, keep me. Protect me. Every day we should pray those kinds of prayers. It's a daily battle. There's a challenge daily to give ground. There's a challenge daily to compromise in terms of our culture, in other areas of life. There's just a challenge. Every day there's a challenge. You live against the tide, not with the tide. There's a challenge every day. So here's just a, a question. How do I know if I'm succeeding in the battle? How do I know? Well, ask yourself, how do you cope with difficulties and setbacks in life? You see, we've just had this election, and uh, there's a number of different ways to respond. But th there is a Christian way to respond. And the Christian way to respond will not be linked to I'm disappointed or I'm ecstatically happy. The Christian way to respond is, the battle belongs to the Lord. Whether he's in or he's in, God raises them up, God brings them down. That's the Christian way to respond. So if you have found yourself responding, either you're jumping around for joy because you're really happy, think, oh yeah, God, thank you, that you're doing that, or you're really depressed. Yeah, I was playing badminton yesterday, and, and among the group I was playing with, there was a girl whose who's, who's husband was... was, was um, a local councillor, and, and the MP he was working with got in, but, but his party didn't get in. So they were like absolutely devastated. They were depressed because of that. And I can understand that. If you're not a Christian, I can understand that. If you are a Christian, I would be surprised at that. I would be surprised at that because your response is nothing to do with who is in power. It's to do with who has the power. 
That's how you should be responding. So if you're finding yourself responding according to who's in power, you have to say to yourself, how am I coping with the difficulties of life? Am I winning the battle? Am I looking up or am I looking around? It's really important that you understand that. Or when things go wrong for you, do you think to yourself, oh, things have been so difficult, I just need to take some time out and go shopping. Retail therapy, I need it. I need retail therapy this week. I need to eat more chocolate. I need to drink more drinks. I need to, for some people, take drugs, have sex. I need to do all of these things because life's just not working out for me. That is not how Christians respond. That is how people respond, and I understand it. If you have stuff that's going on in you and you do not have Christ, of course you respond like that. But if you have Christ, the first place you go, it sounds really super spiritual, it's not meant to, is you go to pray. Father, it's not working out. I don't get it. I don't understand. You take it there first. You don't go, oh, well, I did pray, but then I still went shopping because <laughs> that just made me feel better. It's not about feeling better. It is about trying to be obedient. And then you, neither do you want to, as a Christian, if you're in the battle, simply redefine the boundaries because it's hard. When I'm struggling with this, I was, I was talking to another pastor the other day and he said to me that someone had come up to him in his church and it was a, it was a girl in his church and she wasn't married and she said, I feel the Lord's told me it's okay to sleep with my boyfriend. Yeah? Now, if I'm really honest, I'm like, if someone had come back to me, I said, I'm not sure that's the Lord. I'm not sure that's the Lord. I don't redefine my boundaries because it's difficult, because it's hard. If I have deep things in me that I'm struggling with, I bring them to God. That's where we're to take them. That's how you succeed in the battle. You succeed in the battle by remaining faithful to what he has said. You don't succeed in the battle by just bringing in all sorts of other different things when it gets difficult. And why would you succeed in the battle? You see, if you're a Christian... It is not just about belief. Belief is very important. But there's one thing that overcomes belief, that trumps belief. It's because you love him. It's not even that he loves you. It's you love him. And because of my love for God, I will do what I can to seek God. I will not give up on God and his promises because it's difficult. Why? Because I love him. In the same way, I do not give up on my children when it gets difficult with them, when they're not listening to me. I do not wash my hands of them and say, right, never more. Never, don't even darken my door again. No, we're not going to have those conversations. You don't do that. It, it's absurd to think you would do that. Or every time you enter a difficulty with, your, with your, your husband or your wife, you don't say, okay, that's it. It's all over. Or, or you say that in a moment and then you come back in a few moments and you say, oh, I still love you. In the end, for the Christian, the person who's seeking to follow God, it's your love for God. That's one of the ways you will overcome in the battle. It's because you love him. Not just because he loves you, not because you have all the knowledge, not because you have all the answers, but because you love him. What does Jesus say in the end? If you love me, if you love me, you will do what I command. So he doesn't say, you'll, you'll do what I command because I tell you so. If you love me, you'll do what I command. So the question, how much do you truly love God? You can look at your life and you can help answer that very question for yourself. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're with us. We thank you that you've spoken to us. And I pray, Father, that hearts here will be one to you. I pray that as we look again and maybe ask ourselves the question, how much do I love him? Am I prepared to make sacrifices because I love him? Am I prepared to hold on because of my love for him? Father, I pray that in this room you will find many hearts that go, yes, yes, I'm willing to do it. And so, Lord, as we come to the end of our time and we respond with a song, I pray that you would just continue to speak into hearts here. In the name of Jesus. Amen. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.